10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to the Am I Allowed to Like Anything podcast. I'm your host, Darian Simone Harvin. In today's episode, I have Jason Parham on the show with me. Jason is a senior editor at The Fader, one of my favorite publications right now. And we talk about existing on the internet or not existing on the internet, the editing process and how he adds context to his work as a writer, and also our very very personal and very iconic interactions with Mrs. Tina Lawson, formerly Miss Tina Knowles. So enjoy. Remember that you can rate and subscribe to Am I Allowed to Like Anything on iTunes, listen on Acast, and always join the conversation using the hashtag A-I-A-T-L-A. Okay, so first off, tell me how you are. I should turn off my phone. We should both turn off our phones. Or not off, but you know, the sound off. How are you doing today? I'm good. Um, it's been we just closed the magazine uh, yesterday, so I'm feeling good, free a little bit, liberated. Yeah, I'm actually really excited to talk about your position at Fader and what being an editor is like. I think that although I've most certainly had editors on my podcast, I think that you may be one of the only ones who's like currently an editor holding that position at this time in their life. So I'm really excited to have you. <laughs> Very random first question. How do you have a Wikipedia page? How do I what? How do you have a Wikipedia page? I don't have one, do I? Yes, you do. No, I've never seen it. Wait, let's look at this real quick. Are you sure? Yeah. What does it say? Oh my God, who created this? I thought maybe I thought maybe you <laughs> this did. This is like breaking news. I know because, I mean, I thought that maybe, you know, you, you can create, create a Wikipedia page for yourself sometimes. I don't want to be on the internet at all, actually. <laughs> So I have this like weird dream that in ten years, like everything, I think the internet's just gonna sort of like explode and disappear. So everything Prince kind of thinks that too. I think everything I've written is gonna like go away, and that like kind of brings me some joy. That brings wow, you joy. Wow, I've never seen this before. I'm so glad I brought <laughs> this up. Oh my god, I have to send this to my mother. <laughs> this is like this a... is new. Why don't Google myself? Right. Like, somebody. I thought this, I would have seen this or somebody would have told me about this. This is insane. Oh, my gosh. I wonder who created it. Or I wonder if there's like an algorithm that pulls it together for people maybe after they've written so much. Or I wonder if it's because I got on like a few lists this year. Like I got on this Brooklyn Magazine list and yeah. then like this Magic Johnson list. Maybe the whole, because of the whole Gawker debacle. I don't know. Maybe so. Wow. Wow. And, Anyways, it exists. <laughs> That's insane. <laughs> I feel like I should delete that, actually. Oh, my gosh. No, I I'm don't think you should. I'm going to get a tweet should. about this when I get out of here, by the way. What I, do just you... got back off, I just got back on Twitter after I took, I, I got it for like a week. 
And I was going to stay off until October, but I had to come back on because I needed to, like, promote something for work. Um, as I say, we ran with Kia Lemon, which is amazing. Yeah, I, I read it yesterday. Yeah, it's going to be in our, our next issue, the America issue. Um, and he wrote about growing up in Mississippi and, like, what the American flag means to him and his family, his mom and his grandmother. Um, so I was like, I want to get back on and promote this essay because I edited it. And like, right. I think it's important. People should know about it. And people right. who follow me should know about it. Yeah. But I got off the internet and I just, I don't know, I had been away for a while and so like seeing this is amazing <laughs> okay so you just said two really interesting things first of all how you don't want to be on the internet <laughs> tell me why it's not that i don't want to be on the internet i just don't people don't always need to know who i am mm. i just sort of like i think the work should speak for itself yeah um and so i think my writing sort of does that um i think it's one of the reasons i became a writer because that I don't think I'm a very good public speaker, and I don't think I am a good conversationalist. Um, I'm just, but I think I'm a good listener. Mm -hmm. I think I'm able to put my thoughts together when I have time, and it's one of the reasons I sort of like got into writing. I think, and so I think we live in a time where everybody wants to know everything about you instantly, right? Um, and so I kind of, I don't know. I, I not necessarily, I haven't necessarily been working on the internet for a very long time. I've been only doing this for five, six years professionally. Mm -hmm. Right, but I just feel so exhausted right now because it's like we're, we're it's twenty four seven. It doesn't right. shut off. Right, you and can't it, shut it off. Exactly, and I also which think... which is why I wanted to like go away. I think. <laughs> <laughs> I think we all live better lives though. I, think I we agree. Would, like not be so anxious and stressed and depressed. It, it, they say it's bringing us together, but we're all on our phones. Nobody's like actually like I don't know. It's like a weird sort of catch. It's a weird togetherness. Yeah, it's like alone together. That book that came out a few years ago that was called Alone Together by some. Um, social scientist at MIT, I think. Um, and she was talking about that, how, like, technology's technically supposed to bring us together, but, like, we're actually alone, siloed from each other. Like, we're not actually, like, connecting in ways people think we are. Yeah, I think the scariest thing for me about the Internet is the fact that people who have never met you, because they follow you, think they know you. Right, that's why my avatar is a blue square, because I don't want anybody to know what I look like. <laughs> <laughs> I um I just that really really blows me because and it's like oh you're nonlinear notes at a party I'm like what no no I'm not don't. yeah like how do you even where do you make that connection <laughs> <laughs> my name is Jason <laughs> oh my gosh no I, I think it's all made us all more socially awkward too nobody knows I, how to talk to each other I agree I used to be the most outgoing like very personable could start a conversation with right. anyone and. It, I find it a lot harder for me to do that, even with my podcast. I think that one of the reasons why I started my podcast was because, number one, kind of how you say that you translate best through words and writing, I think I translate best through my voice and through speaking. Right, right, right. And so I'm just trying to keep this up right, without right, saying right. um and like every sentence, which has been hard, but, you know, I'm here to do it. Okay, so... The question I start off, and we kind of almost got into it a little bit in a way, I always ask all of my guests because I think it's really important for people to realize how others grow up and maybe how it got them to kind of what they're doing right now. So tell me about how you grew up. Uh, I grew up in Los Angeles, born and raised. There are, there's like this crop of people you'll meet after you leave L.A. if you're living in New York or whatever city. 
and you might meet them and they say they're from LA and then you're like where mm-hmm. and then they say like the valley and it's like oh that's oh. not actually LA though yeah what part of LA so I grew up in Ladera Heights you know Frank Ocean living in Ladera Heights mm-hmm. um and then my mom now she's still there my mom and most of my family is actually still there my mom was in Inglewood now not too far from where they're building the new uh, Rams Stadium. Okay. Um, where the Great Western Forum is. Uh, but I grew up in a single single parent household. I have one older brother who's here in New York as well. He's a uh, he edits commercials. Uh, he went to NYU and he's been here fifteen years now. I think I've been here six years. But we grew up in a really close household. There were like books everywhere. Mm. Uh, my mom was like pretty liberal. Yeah. She trusted us. Um, I played football in high school, and then my senior year, I decided that this wasn't, like, taking me anywhere. Yeah. And so I was like, maybe I'll join the newspaper, because I think I like to write. That's kind of bold um, in high school. Yeah. I was like, this isn't, I was like, you know, I'm in decent shape. My friends all still play ball, but, like, we'll still be friends if I, like, get off the team. I was like, I need to, like, figure out what I want to do, because this isn't, like, actually... <laughs> I don't know. I was just like clear about that it wasn't what I wanted to f- that follow that path. And mm-hmm. I was like, maybe I'll do something else. For a while, that would be like a doctor or maybe even a chef. But I was like, oh, I'll join the paper, see if there's something there. And, it's, and it went really well. And I just sort of like stumbled into journalism that way. What was your very first job like in media? Like real job or internship? Re- I want to know your real job. Uh, I was an editorial fellow at the Village Voice in 2010. Um, so for four months, they have this program where you work on the news desk and you pitch stories and you write for the website. And I was lucky enough, I got to work with one of the staff writers there and we collaborated on a cover story. So I have one Village Voice cover story to my name. <laughs> I forget exactly what I was reading. It had to have been something on Tupac that was written uh, when, he, when he had passed away, like mm-hmm. from the Village Voice. And I And it's so crazy to, not crazy to think about, but... I mean, Village Voice, I guess if you're not from New York, if you don't kind of know the history of how they used to really cover and also the writers who used to work yeah, for the Village Voice. it's been such a great incubator of talent. It's, yeah. It's, it's such a legacy. Just even when I was working there, writers like Zach Barron, who's at GQ now, Rob Harbillo, who was at Deadspin, but he's at The Ringer now. Um, Foster Kamer has been through there. Joe Coscarelli, who is a, the music reporter for The New York Times. Like, there's, there's been a sort of, like, real, like, turn and push and pull through sort of, like, a lot of great people come through there. I think it's a good, like, training camp in a way. Right. You know? Yeah, that's the sense that I get, too. Yeah. Kind of to fast forward a little bit, I'm interested to know how you first started maybe, like, writing for Gawker or if you started out as an editor or what kind of that was. The Gawker thing came – that was, like, four years later. Wow. We did skip a lot. That's fine because I don't want to talk about complex so I just, I'd been working as an editor, an associate editor at Complex for two years, and I got an email one day. Actually, I got a Twitter DM from Max Reed, who had just been named the editor-in-chief of Gawker. And I was familiar with Gawker, but I wasn't sort of like in New York media like that, you know? I wasn't like in that world. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was familiar with how they operated and like their sort of uh, reputation, if you want to say, the notorious sort of like reputation that Gawker had at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and sort of this crazy sort of like CEO, Nick Denton, that was like running the place. Um, but he reached out to me. He was like, you know, we want to take Gawker in a new direction. We want to expand their voice. Uh, he's like, I think you're the guy to do that for me. A lot of people have said so many great things about you. He was a fan of Spook, which is the magazine that I publish. And so he was like, let's meet. 
And so over the course of a month, we met maybe like three or four times. Because I was like wary at first. I was like, I don't know. Like, I've heard a lot of crazy things about this place. People come, they only work here for two months and they get like fired or they get kicked out or like something crazy happens. Mm -hmm. But I really believed in his vision and where he wanted to take it. He was hiring a lot of other people as well. I think I was the first hire he made as editor-in-chief. This was 2014. And he, you said he DM'd you? He hit me up on Twitter. I woke <laughs> up one morning. I think it was a Saturday morning. And it was just like very... We had followed... We were following each other on right. Twitter. Yeah. But it was just a weird sort of like, hey, you know, I mm-hmm. you know, I would love to possibly meet with you. There's this position I think you'd be great for. Yeah. Um, so it seems like, and correct me if I'm if I am wrong, but it seems like you've always, in addition to writing, you've always always also been like editing as well simultaneously. Like, I kind of fell into editing because it was just more stable than writing. Mm-hmm. I think unless you're a more big name freelance writer and you have just sort of constant projects always coming in and assignments that it's sort of hard to make a living. And also I wanted healthcare, you know? (laughs) Um, And so that's how I sort of started out at Complex. I got hired as an associate editor. And from there I went to Gawker as the senior editor. And then from there I went to Fader as the senior editor. Okay, so I want to talk about what editors do. And I feel like that seems like such a simple question, but I know that it is, in my opinion, quite a com- a complex one. But kind of before we do that, I want to talk about context in terms of writing. You're like mm-hmm. smiling at me. No, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> I love talking about context. Um, it's so important. Yeah, and and to be completely honest with you, it's something that I've been thinking more about just as I've continued to write a little bit more and have just been more involved with putting words together. In creating content, right? And I think as I just continue to go along, especially when you're a young writer and you're growing up during this time where things are hundreds, thousands of things are published every day, whether it's good or bad, to me, what always has risen above have been the pieces that are not just about the now, right? But in a way, bring context to the work in terms of what has happened in the past, why this is important now, and then also taking a landscape at current events, whatever that may be. Am I making right. sense? No, yeah, definitely. And so I want to talk about, like, how important this is and, like, why this is so important and, like, how this serves readers. Right. And I want to talk about it in a way where it's, like, how did you learn to bring context to your work? And right. how do you right. continue to bring right. context to your work? I think that was just what I was taught. Uh, you know, I, I studied journalism, and then I went to grad school for literature and African American studies. So a lot of my work has always been grounded in like the past and the present. Mm-hmm. So to talk, to sort of know specifically or write, you know, intelligently about something, you have to know where that comes from or where you come from. You know, right? I mean, as Black people, we're always sort of like our past sort of defines who we are. We, you know, as I always say, the history of Black folks has been one of the history of black folks in America has always been one of sort of migration and displacement where I was looking for a home and a place. And so I think context for us is like we're always looking to like situate ourselves somewhere. Right. Mm-hmm. So I, I think in your writing, especially for me, it's like your the context of the story is sort of like it's telling it from your perspective and who you are. But it's also like where you're from, you know, mm-hmm. and I think it's important because a lot of journalism or essay writing sometimes lack it sort of lacks that today. Mm-hmm. Um but it's like it's it's all I know, and I so, and I don't want to discredit people who don't necessarily not write the way I write or 
other writers that I admire, but I think it's important in almost everything that you do because you'll see it at institutions. I think that's one of the reasons I was brought to Gawker in a sense because in some ways it was lacking context. They were trying to grow and evolve and grow up as they would say when I was there, but the staff was all white, mm-hmm. right? And so like, how are you going to be a part of the conversation when the conversation doesn't look like you. You can't really have a real say in anything. Right. I think you can have a real say, but like you can't, you can only go so far in the conversation. Right. right? At some point, you end up like hitting a wall. Right. Because right. you don't have those voices to help you bring context to that work. It's Get- just like you're not a legitimate sort of like source or voice in the conversation if you're saying, I want to like be an X conversation or be a part of this movement or whatever. But like it's all white folks. Right. And so, how do you help? writers at least at your position at fader to like help them to bring context to their work i think it's about it's all about sort of like pulling that depth out of them it's always i mean every writer is different everybody turns in a different draft some people are more refined than others some people need a lot more work um but i i tell everybody that especially when we're doing first person essays or like narrative driven stories or profiles that just really tell a true story, something that is true to you and that is true to the subject. It may not be nice. It may not be pretty. It's probably going to be a little ugly, and it's probably going to, like, navigate a very gray area, right? Because mm-hmm. everything isn't sort of sort of black and white. Um, and so I, I just tell them to stay true to who they are and what they're writing, and we'll get there. Yeah. You have to have a lot of patience, I feel. Yeah, it's patience. You have to, like, trust your gut, too. I think... Early on, I second-guessed a lot of my decisions as an editor, but sometimes you just have to say, this is what it is, and this is what we're going to do, and, like, keep it pushing. And then, like, you learn along the way, obviously. You'll make a lot of mistakes early on, but I think after a while, you sort of trust your instincts. Yeah. And I think lately, the success, at least later at Gawker and then at Fader, has been because I just sort of trust who I am now as an editor. Right. And you brought in a, a lot of really great voices as an editor at Gawker as an editor at Gawker as well. Right. One of the reasons I actually took the position was because, well, I trusted Max, and I, but I also thought that the platform was so huge and I would have mm. such an immense sort of a, it'd be such an immense undertaking to sort of change the conversation at Gawker and bring a lot of people through the door. Sort of mm. like Van Newkirk who's at the Atlantic now, Donna Ramsey who wrote some of the best criminal justice and policing stories yes. that we did there. And we got a lot of good people through the door. Working with KSA Layman every week on this, mm. you know, true story essays. Like there's a lot of like good shit, for lack of a better word, right? Right. Okay, so obviously we know about just the tumultuous past of the Gawker. But I'm interested to know for you, because, I mean, you kind of left Gawker before, at least when I spoke to you, when it kind of before the shit hit the fan. Right. Well, I didn't leave. I got kicked out, but I oh, got laid off. Oh, you did tell me that. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> but, I mean, how long... severance package. I'm fine. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then when did you finally get the gig at Fader? I'm interested to know how you got right. that Right. So that happened... They had a round of layoffs in November of 2015. And I was, like, one of eight people let go that day, maybe. Um, And part of that package, though, was that you got a severance package that essentially ran. It's basically like you're still getting paid for two months. You're just not Mm -hmm. having to come into the office. Like, you don't technically work anymore, but, like, it's going to run its course. So kind of just, like, chilled out for two months. Yeah. November and December. It's the holidays. Right. 
But I got a few offers. The thing about Gawker is that because you work at Gawker, your name sort of is everywhere all the time. Mm-hmm. And because you're the only black editor at Gawker, your name is especially everywhere all the time. Right. And so when the layoffs happened, my name was in Newsweek, was in all these places mm-hmm. I'd never been before. And I got a lot of offers from other publications saying, hey, we loved your work at Gawker. We love what you were doing with the long form and the true stories and working with Kiese. Mm-hmm. And we'd love to have you do that for us. But I kind of like took my time. I was like, there's no rush. I think I need to figure out who I am and the person I want to be and the editor and the writer I want to be. Yeah. So I took maybe like one or two freelance assignments during that two months. But mm-hmm. I was just mostly like binging on like Nip Tuck and <laughs> Weeds and... I watched the entire season of Six Feet Under, which I love, and made me cry the last episode. <laughs> so during those two months when you were really figuring all of that out, like right. the type of editor and writer that you wanted to be, like what conclusions did you did you come to? I realized I wanted to be a writer instead of an editor. <laughs> um, no, no, no. I realized that I wanted to continue to sort of put good work into the world, and I felt that of all the options that I had on the table, that Fader was the best one to sort of like give me that space and that opportunity mm-hmm. moving forward. Mm-hmm. Um, and also I kind of wanted to work in magazines again. Um, I had an in- I interned at Vibe in two- the summer of 2008 under like Daniel Smith and uh, Benjamin Meadows Ingram and Sean Finnessy. Um, it was like, and it was such a great apprenticeship because it gave me a real love for magazines, you know? Mm-hmm. And even like growing up on Vibe and XXL, like I was... I still have all those magazines, right, back yeah. home. And so I was like, I want to be somewhere and, like, be a part of that legacy. And I felt like I could be a part of Vader's rich history. Yeah. And, like, take it in a new direction. I really trusted Naomi's vision, too. She was bringing on Amos Barshad, who had been in Grantland, which had recently shuttered. And I always loved his work. And Riley Kamer was there working with her. Um, and so it just seemed like a really good fit. I want to talk about Spook. Oh, great. My baby. Can I tell you that when I was at Hardcover, I was at our Dumbo office and I picked up a Spook randomly. It was there? I think the place I may have picked it up, but I'm not 100% sure. There's like, I'm blanking on the name. There's like a big bookstore in Dumbo. Powerhouse. Yeah, Powerhouse. Yeah, Yeah. so I think I picked it up at Powerhouse. But I didn't know oh, that it was okay. your. This was this was when I was really new and fresh to everything. I had no like beginning or insight to what New York media was or really what people were doing. And I remember I brought it back, and Danielle goes to me, "Oh, that's Jason Parham. That's his magazine." And I was like, "Oh, okay. I don't know who that is, but okay, sure." <laughs> and man, I I think the reason you why know what issue it was. I don't remember what issue it was, but I want to say that. Rembert had maybe written something or had or he had contributed in some way to it. Okay, so it's either it was one of the first three then. Yeah. Okay. Um yeah, definitely. Maybe two or three, yeah. I think it was two or three. I don't think it was the first one, but 
It was a red cover or a gray cover? It was a gray cover. Oh, issue number two. Okay. Yeah. That was a good one. Yeah. And, man, I'm t- I should have really tried to find a photo of our, of our office, but there was a page that I had ripped out of the magazine and I had put it. Of Spook? Of Spook. <laughs> and it was it was just like a really light copy. It was a quote or something like that. Right. I, really, I honestly yeah, have right, to find right, it. Right. But I want to know, I want to know how you got the idea for Spook and how you managed to keep Spook going as you mm-hmm. had a full-time job. A lot mm-hmm. of people have a hard time doing that. Right, right, right. So Tony Morrison, being sort of the wise and wonderful writer and woman and thinker that she is and black person Mm -hmm. um she said you know right she always would say when she approached writing the bluest eye which is her debut novel that she wanted to sort of write the book that she want to read and so that was sort of her impetus for writing the bluest eye she had never seen anybody tell this story before and this was sort of like something that she wanted to put into the world and so i kind of took that nugget and a and sort of applied that to Spook as somebody who had worked in magazines for so long. And I was like, there's not really, this was in 2012. I started thinking about it in 2011 when I I was finishing up grad school. No, that's a lie. I was finished in 2010. So I was thinking about this in late 2010. And I just finished grad school and I was like, I know these, you know, creative thinkers and, you know, smart folks. Why don't, why isn't there sort of like a New Yorker? There's the, so there's the New Yorker, there's Harper's, there's Granta, there's all these like great established liberal literary journals. But so often I felt that there was only like one or two people of color in there. Mm -hmm. There's always, there wasn't a whole book of us, really, if it was what I'm trying to say. And so I felt like I could do that. Right. Not as ambitious as, you know, obviously my funds are limited. I'm not backed by like a major media company or anything, but. I felt like I had been enough resources and I can add, call in enough favors to put something together. And the first one came out in June 2012. And we haven't looked back since. God, it's been four years already. Jesus. This is a random question, but I'm always so interested to know, who did you publish it through? Not publish it through, but print it through. Um, I did a lot of research. So I, there was a lot of research before ever we ever like got to press. Right. right. Um, because I, I really didn't know anything about independent publishing. Um, it's weird to sort of being a creative and being a writer, the editorial side is totally different than like the business side, right? Mm-hmm. And this is something that having worked at Complex, uh, now working at Fader, is like not something I ever dealt with. But doing it on my own, I had to sort of like figure it out. Right. Because I did a lot of research and I came across this company called MagCloud. It's a tech publishing company out of the Bay Area and they do independent publishing and printing on demand mm. and so like it's, it's it was just the best option for me at the time right very and cool. still is the good thing about printing is you could do it very expensive and you can do it cheap if you want yeah. to as well and you can bind them in really cool unique ways yeah. and it's not always really expensive so that's very cool when does the next book come out so I took the year off because I actually ran into one of the photographers who shot for us uh, Andre Wagner, I ran into him on the streets and we were talking for a while and I was telling him that I wanted to sort of refocus our vision for Spook. Mm-hmm. Not saying it, it doesn't have a clear vision, a clear identity, because I think it does, because I think it's impacts a lot of people in a lot of important ways, but I wanted to give it even more impact. And so I took the year off 
and have been like looking into web design and like how other people are printing. I think hardcover was a big inspiration in terms of like how it can actually look, you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. be more of a boutique magazine and not just sort of like a flimsy, glossy, not saying that's not fine because I mean, that's how, that's what Fader is and it's beautiful. Right. But I wanted to sort of, I don't know, like, because we only do it once a year, so I really wanted to, like, mean something. Right, like, for it to be a moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For it to be a moment, perfect, yes. Yeah, and to, and for it to be a statement. Right. And I, I mean, people use the term, like, a coffee table book, but kind of in a way, yeah, yeah. where you have it out and it's visible, yeah. right? Okay, so here's the question I'm asking everyone. <laughs> you are really studying these points I gave you. I'm very impressed. So, I didn't prepare, but I'm, I'm ready for them. I know, well... I try not to give people, like, the exact questions I'm going to give them. I just want them to know. No, that's good. I don't need to cut off too off guard. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I want to know how the 2016 presidential election has affected you so far. Um, I think I was paying a lot more attention when Bernie and Hillary were, like, we were trying to decide who was going to be the Democratic nominee. Mm. I think now that it's we've decided that it's Hillary versus Trump. I sort of like unplugged a little bit because I'm obviously I'm not voting for Trump. It's affected me in the way there. I feel like there's just a lot of like noise pollution that I don't want to hear anybody's opinion on anything. Right. You know, I, feel the I same think way. we've hit a point of where it's like, all right, let's just everybody vote in November. Like I don't care anymore. Right. Like, I don't need to read another profile about Donald Trump. I don't need to read any more about Hillary Clinton's health. Like, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't, this is not important to me. Yeah. Like, let's talk about, if you want to talk about the issues, let's talk about the issues. And if you want to talk about the issues, let's talk about the black people getting shot in the street. But we're not doing that. So, like, everybody shut up and go vote. And then, I don't know. And then I guess we'll see what <laughs> yeah. happens. Hopefully we, hopefully we no don't more, all have to move to Canada when Trump becomes president. Yeah. And no more, like, Twitter <laughs> philosophy threads on, like, who Trump is and, and right. what, and, like, what he's doing and, and why this is about to launch your career. So. As my coworker, Rowie, always says, it's not that deep, fam. <laughs> okay. So, this is my last question before we get to the plus one segment. What is your dream right now what do you think about when you wake up what's always in the back of your head what do you what are you thinking about what is your dream right now i mean what do i think about when i wake up being happy and how do i get to that place Mm -hmm. but my dream what two one is either like get a crazy insane book contract which doesn't really happen anymore and then, like, move back to L.A. and just, like, write novels on the beach all day. Hmm. Alrighty. So, I have one segment on my podcast. Oh, oh, wait. My other dream. Oh. Wait. Continue. Sorry. So, how I'm, like, I want to get off the internet because I'm so <laughs> jaded now. Um, I want to move to a remote island somewhere mm-hmm. and open a bar and just, like, live off the land. So, one of those two things. <laughs> do you want to open a bar because do you have some experience bartending or that's you just want to own a business it's a great way to meet people and just I like agree. go somewhere and just like be in the world be present in the world how mm-hmm. we were saying earlier how people are always on Twitter on their phones and not really not really in the moment mm-hmm. and I think at least what I've seen in New York and it doesn't necessarily have to be a bar it could be a restaurant it could be something else but like just being present with people and there yeah. You know, engaging with them in, a, in an actual, real, substantive way and not something superficial. 
whenever I go out to eat, I always prefer to sit at the bar because I feel like you're you have the person next to you who you're with. But then you have this opportunity to talk to someone else if you want or talk to someone next to you if you want. And that always is in New York is there's sort of the magic of the city. It always turns into you like falling into somebody else's conversation at the bar. Right. I like Who knows, maybe your friends in like a year. Yeah, exactly. It turns into like a friendship that you never thought you would have. Mm -hmm. Alrighty, so now we can head into the plus one segment. This is a time you can shout out a person, place, thing, or experience that you appreciate right now. I haven't even thought about mine. I just thought about that. I can go first. Okay. Because actually, this is actually the only question I thought about. I was like, I can't come with anything like sus. What do you I, mean? I have two. Sus. It's okay if I have two. You can plus have two. two. Can I we love. Do a plus two? We can do a plus two. I like people can have as many as they want. So the first one is this is I want to preface this by saying I I've never had a Snapchat even though I've been in the backgrounds of my friends' Snapchats before. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was very anti. The only two social media platforms that I use are Twitter and Instagram. I don't have Facebook. I don't have anything else. But I love Instagram. And so when they introduced Instagram stories, I was like, this is whack because you stole, you basically stole somebody else's idea. Aside from like the filters that Mm -hmm. are really cool on Snapchat that people use, like you basically stole their framework. Mm -hmm. And so I was very anti Instagram stories until I, and so I didn't update my phone for the longest. I didn't update my uh, Instagram app on my phone because I didn't want the stories to pop up at the top. Right. Um, But I finally did like three weeks ago. And you like it, don't you? I like it for one very specific reason. Because now I know what all my Instagram crushes sound like. You know, because you can't really tell in their photos, like people you follow that you don't actually know. Yeah. You don't know what they sound like. Yeah. And how they like move through the world. Now you do. And it's like kind of a creep thing to say, but no. it's fine. I'm all about living my truth. <laughs> it's it, it's I love it though. I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, word. yeah. <laughs> I think that's also why people also like Snapchat as well. But the great thing about Instagram is that it's two in one. It feels it's it's just yeah. it's just so much more convenient for me. Right now, I'm not on two platforms, and now I'm not like on this platform that's gonna lighten my skin or like possibly make me Bob Marley. You know, right. nothing like that is gonna is hopefully not gonna happen on Instagram stories. I don't know what how it's gonna evolve and how it's gonna affect Snapchat, but. I have this theory that I think I think this is what singularity is, where it's like everything is moving into the same. Everything eventually is becoming the same thing or mm. forming into the same idea. So I think all these social platforms start out as one thing, but they eventually all have the same thing in like twenty years. Like mm. Snapchat is essentially gonna be Facebook. It just started out as this sort of like micro messaging video platform. Yeah. Instagram is eventually gonna be Facebook. It's gonna have everything that Facebook has, but it started out as like a photo archive where you could post photos of all your friends. And it's interesting how Facebook is your reference. How Facebook is our reference? Because I get that. Because everything wants to be this like major platform that brings and connects the world. Mm-hmm. And so they start out very small, but then they eventually have to adapt and grow because their users want more eventually. Right. Right. Okay, now let me think about... I need to look on my phone to see if there's anything I've taken a picture of recently. Oh, my other one was my other... I had, so I have a plus oh, yes. two. My other, my last one was my coworker just... And my friend. We were friends first. She always gets mad when I call her my coworker before I call her my friend. But um, <laughs> I know, like, how real are you? <laughs> Hashtag real friends. Shout yeah. out to Kanye West. Um, She just got back from the UK from a wedding. And she brought, so we have candy in our office. We all, we always rotate who has to buy, like, candy mm-hmm. for the bowl. Mm-hmm. And so 
I always bring in like York peppermint patties or like Hershey Kisses, uh, like the small Hershey Kiss bars. Sometimes people bring like Kit Kats, but it's always like something good. But she brought back these candies. They're called Aero Bubbles. I've heard of those um, before. I've never had these before. It's an aerated peppermint. It says with half milk chocolate, half peppermint, and a half flavor shell. But it basically tastes like mint chocolate chip ice cream in a ball. And it's the most... I had like 20 of them today. It was so <laughs> How big bad. are they? Are they they're like... Tiny, they're tiny. And they're white, too. Yeah. They're very light, which yeah. I think was really... Which why I kept eating them. Because I was like, oh, these aren't like... They're not heavy. I don't feel like they're bad. I mean, it's all sugar, obviously. So it's terrible. But they're so good. And I feel like she should have brought more back. But she only brought one bag and they're going to be all gone tomorrow. And they're all going to be gone. It's going to be your fault. <laughs> I feel like I've actually have seen those overseas. But maybe I have no, seen them. No, I feel like they're probably... I just yeah, haven't seen like them in the U.S. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. I never, I never had them before. They're I'm so a, good. I'm a big candy person. Like I love sugar. I'm someone who always has to have dessert after. You know, I'm definitely a big sweets person. Okay, I have a plus one. All right, what's yours? Mrs. Tina Knowles. <laughs> Isn't she like the queen of IG? Isn't she like the best? Oh my god! This is why <laughs> I specifically want to. I mean, obviously, Mrs. Mrs. Tina Knowles. Well, I guess Knowles isn't her last... What's her last name Ms. now? Tina Knowles Lawson. Lawson. Excuse me. Obviously, phenomenal woman. I have a story about Tina Knowles after we finish this, by the way. Okay. A oh, my gosh. I have, t- I have stories about Tina Knowles, too. I used to intern at Parkwood. Oh, nice. And at the end of my time, I gave everyone a card. And so I gave Miss Tina a card. <laughs> and then um, and then I gave her the card, and I think I, I like left for the night. But then I ended up coming back a bunch of times to work even after... I was supposed to be officially done. And she was like, thank you so much for that car, honey. I really appreciate what you said about me. (laughs) Anyways, she is a national treasure. Someone who has most certainly kept um, her entire family grounded. Right. um, And is the reason why I think all of them are so polite. Shout out to black women. Yeah, shout out to black women. (laughs) And Shout out to my mama. Shout out to my mama. She is the queen of grown folk Instagram. And I love it. I just love how she is posting whatever. She's so very unapologetic about who she is and how she's aging. Like right. She's just like, I embrace who I am. Yeah. I'm fly. I'm fly. And y'all just going to deal with it. And I'm on vacation. <laughs> right. <laughs> Jumping and, off yachts in the <laughs> south of France just because it's like, okay, yeah. I'm and, trying to live like you too. And then I feel like she was in France for... Um, Magic Johnson and oh, his, for his his big birthday, yeah. yeah, like for his big birthday, and like Steve Harvey was there, and like all of these just like grown black folk, and I was like, all this right here, see all this happening, this is how I'm trying to live when I turn sixty, right. however, like this is what my life needs to be like, right. me in France, someplace with lots of great it's people. A good, it's a good goal to. Yeah, like, I don't know. I mean, people want to be famous, and I'm just trying to be, like, black folk goals. Right. She should write a book, like, how to live, you know. She should, actually. living at, like, 60 or 70, however right. she is. So what's your Tina story? So once a year, every Christmas, uh, Christmas Eve, my friend back home in L.A., she has, she lives, she was in New York for a while, but she's back in L.A. now. Her family has a big, like, Christmas Eve party. Mm-hmm. And they invite people over to their house. And I've been going for the last three years, four years. So it's something I look to every year because 
her mom makes the best, some of the best gumbo I've ever had in my life. It's like centered around that, basically. It's like mm-hmm. it's a time where her mom makes all this gumbo, this paella, jambalaya, and everybody just comes over. It's a good time. It's black folks talking about the year and like where yeah. they're at, what they want to do next year. It's a good time of like fellowship and just see friends and family. So me and my cousin always go, and we went. It was the year before last, and we had just smoked. Yeah. I mean, you're from L.A., everybody <laughs> yeah, smokes yeah, yeah, This yeah, is yeah. like a default. You're born with like a joint in your mouth and you come out your mom's school <laughs> or whatever. That's fine. So we walk into the house, and I look to my left, and Tina Knowles is sitting on the couch. Of course. And I swear to you, my knees got like really, really weak, and I almost like passed out. Oh and I was gosh. like, I was like. No, was no one going to warn me? She And she knew, my friend knew that Tina Knowles was in there, but she didn't tell us. Oh, she was trying to be chill about it, basically. Yeah, but it's like, you can't just, like, bring, like surprise somebody with that. Right. Like, it's Tina Knowles. Did you smile? Did She's you important. Talk? I said hi. We shook yeah. hands. Cool. I tried to get a photo of my cousin. I was like, don't know that they're going to kick us out of here. And I said, I didn't do that. Yeah, no. <laughs> it's not even worth it. I tried it. to, like, sneak a photo. Because yeah. I was like, nobody's going to believe me unless I get a photo. <laughs> but She is the one user in which, when she posts... My Instagram notifications go off. <laughs> so, I don't know. I definitely appreciate her Instagram. Frank Ocean's mom, she doesn't post that often, but hers is kind of similar in that same yeah. way. They're most certainly living she seems their best really lives. Chill. Yeah, she seems really chill. I never pass in, on, um, on Blonde. I never pass by her voicemail. Mm-hmm, right, like, it's so inspirational. Yeah, it's literally so inspirational. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so, anyway, shout out to Miss Tina. Jason, thank you. Of course, thank you for having me. This was not as bad as I thought it was going to be. I knew that you thought that this was going to be a little bad. I just am like anti-podcast a little bit. Why? Because it's the craze? There's just so many podcasts. Right, there are so many. I'm sure I'm going to have to do one eventually soon too to keep up with everybody. So I'm going to invite you on mine. Okay, sounds good. That's not a good problem. (laughs) That's not a bad problem to have, so. (laughs) 